This is a penny for your thoughts. I'm Farrell Styers. A Penny for Your Thoughts is a show about the business of figuring out what people want and why. Because there's in fact a massive industry built around trying to understand human motivations. And I don't come to this empty-handed. I've spent the last decade helping all sorts of organizations understand what people think. I worked in the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad at the height of the Iraq War. I ran a social research company in Kyrgyzstan that looked at everything from perceptions of democracy to the impact of industry on rural villages. I even ran a one-man user research operation for a major tech manufacturer. And now, I live in the beautiful city of Ghent, Belgium, where I work for one of the most innovative market research companies in the world, Insights Consulting. And this is all to say, I'm fascinated with this research. I'm fascinated by how academic theories and social science created a multi-billion dollar industry. I love seeing how changes in culture, in technology, even in the way we do business, is shaping how we behave and how we understand ourselves. So I'm setting out on a mission to share these stories. And my first story starts a few months ago. I hit a point where I was disillusioned. I still loved research, but I felt like the industry was broken in some pretty fundamental ways. So for this first episode, I want to look at the state of the industry and how we got here. We'll hear a bleak assessment of how market research is like a dying horse. They still think we have a lean and mean horse, whereas I think we all, the agencies all know it's a dying horse. And hear from one of the giants of the past. We don't go out and ask directly, uh, why do you buy, why don't you? What we try to do instead is to understand the total personality. But before we get to that, let's look at where it all started. You can find examples of market research going back hundreds of years, depending on how loosely you define it. But where it really picks up is in the early 1900s in the United States. And initially, it started from ad agencies who were looking for a way to measure how effective their advertising was. They'd just send some guys around town and stop people on the sidewalk. Then they'd ask them which magazines they read and which ads they remembered from those magazines. They'd take all this information back to their office, tally up the results, compare it to the number of magazines sold, and voila, the first advertising metrics were born. And while this research clearly had its limits, it laid the groundwork for how those measurements are made, even today. Eventually, an American psychologist by the name of Daniel Starch saw that he could add more scientific rigor to the way the research was conducted. And in 1923, he started among the very first successful market research firms, Daniel Starch and staff. They sold research as a service, a bit of a first. And as businesses started seeing the advantages of market research, more and more of these research agencies started to pop up. And for the next decade and a half, this is really how market research was done. Face-to-face, -face, quantitative surveys, mostly centered on advertising. And that's not to say there wasn't progress. During the same time, George Gallup created the company that became synonymous with opinion polling, making the first scientific election predictions. Rinsis Likert invented the Likert scale, a tool for measuring attitudes which is still used by researchers today. 
but still, it was all a very objective, dry, fact-based enterprise. In old newsreels exploring this burgeoning new science, you get a feel for just how dry it was. And here the story begins at the Opinion Center. People are asked to express their opinions about new products for the home. A new coffee percolator? What do you think, ladies? I like this one here. Well, actually, I like them both. But I think I prefer this one a little bit. These women are engaged in an opinion research project. After several thousand opinions, you get a pretty good idea of what women want in the way of a coffee percolator shape or anything else. The but then came a clever Viennese psychologist who flipped all of this on its head. His name was Dr. Ernest Dichter. Dichter was a young, Freudian-trained psychologist in Vienna who, like so many other Jewish intellectuals of the 1930s, fled from the Nazis and eventually landed in New York. And this is where he started proposing a new way of understanding consumers, employing a concept called motivational research, a name which he also used for his research agency. This is the Institute for Motivational Research a place devoted to the intriguing business of finding out why people behave as they do, why they buy as they do, why they respond to advertising as they do. At the heart of his philosophy was a claim that people don't know themselves particularly well, certainly not their motivations. So asking them directly what they thought just made no sense. Dichter thought that asking someone why they bought a given product was akin to your doctor asking you why your stomach hurt. That's the doctor's job to figure out, he said, not the patient. In market research, it was the researcher's job to use the tools of psychology to understand people's motivations, not the consumer's job to tell them. So Dichter would conduct these long, qualitative interviews, or even just observe people, the way an anthropologist would. And like any good Freudian, he looked for the latent desires and fears that he thought drove most people's thinking. Here's an old clip of Dichter describing his work. This is Dr. Ernest Dichter. We don't go out and ask directly, uh, why do you buy, why don't you? What we try to do instead is to understand the total personality, the self-image of the customer. We use all the resources of modern social sciences. It opens up some stimulating psychological... So, instead of direct questions, do you like this one or that one? They were trying to look at deeper, more subjective drivers. This approach was fresh, and his directness with clients was interesting. And soon, he became the darling of the market research world. He's even credited with coining the term focus group. One of his first major successes was for ivory soap. Using his new techniques, Dichter came to the realization that bathing was a ritual, and even more, it had underlying sexual implications. During their interviews, women implied, according to Dichter, that their weekend bath was part of their preparation for a potential romantic encounter. Now, in puritanical post-war America, such claims, especially in austere corporate environments, were revolutionary. Dichter even took it further by claiming that people unconsciously chose their soap based on the personality exhibited or the values that it stood for. So here's a psychoanalyst with a thick German accent 
telling a group of executives that their soap needs a personality and that they need to focus on the secret sexual implications of the product. It doesn't really sound like a recipe for success. But the soap campaign built on his research was a success. And Dichter's new techniques were embraced by clients and researchers alike. And it wasn't just the techniques that made Dichter's work revolutionary either. While not alone in this, he started going beyond advertising research and helping companies create new products based on consumer insights. For example, he recognized that by asking housewives to mix an egg into Betty Crocker's instant cake mix, women felt like they were preparing something homemade for their families. They were less embarrassed to buy it. And as a result of the new cake mix, sales improved. But some of the boundaries Dichter and his adherents pushed went too far for many. Some of the more theatrical claims of deep-seated drivers for power and inclusion and sex, all motivating people's purchases of everyday items, they were seen as suspect by some. He was also attacked by some who saw his work as driving needless consumerism. By the 1970s, motivational research fell out of favor in boardrooms. But regardless, the industry was forever changed. And while this seismic shift in qualitative research was happening, there was another change happening on the quantitative side too. Surveyors learned how to draw representative samples, allowing them to accurately measure huge populations. They were no longer just grabbing people off the sidewalk. They understood concepts like probability and mathematical randomization. And they knew how to apply this all to their work. And they had also learned how to take advantage of a technology now found in every household, the telephone. For the next 30 years, that is how research was done. In-person, qualitative interviews and focus groups, and telephone-based surveys. But what did change during this time was the scale. More and more companies, governments, and organizations of all shapes and sizes realized that understanding people was key to improving their offers. So they poured more and more resources and attention into it, creating a multi-billion dollar industry around trying to understand what makes people tick. But remember, we started this show with a dire description of the future of market research. Um, they still think we have a lean and mean horse, whereas I think we all, the agencies all know it's a dying horse. So who is this guy who thinks the research industry is a dying horse? I am uh, Hakim Zemni. I am the managing director of Insights Consulting Belgium. I wanted to talk to Hakim because he witnessed the next major transition in research. As a general manager at an international research firm, he has his fingers in almost every aspect of the business. And he's been at it for a long time. Hakim started in market research as a student in the late 90s, working part-time in a research agency call center. After a short time climbing the ranks, he eventually ran the entire call center. And I would get these um, randomized fixed lines. Um, and as soon as somebody, somebody would pick up the phone somewhere in Belgium, um, they would get uh, appointed to a surveyor. In some cases, that was me. And then I would open by saying, hi, my name is Hakim Zemni from the uh, 
international market research agency market response do you have a couple of minutes to share with me a couple of your opinions the biggest product we had at the time was this um, telephone omnibus which meant that we would call a thousand people systematically every week starting monday ending friday evening and in uh, the span of the week we could add questionnaires depending on the clients briefing us um, we could go up to 25 30 minute questionnaires per person not longer and it was already quite long of course uh, but so literally you had a couple of those introduction questions and depending on the profile of the person they would get the extra 10 minutes um, based on the specific the specifics of that client this as we already heard was how research had been done for years but market research was hit with the same technological shift that the rest of the world was in the late 90s. Being a small agency at the time, I worked for Market Response. Then Market Response was actually a Dutch office or a Dutch company. Uh, but they wanted to expand, so they bought this local agency in Belgium. Um, and then three years later, they changed opinion. Why? Because they realized that you don't need physical offices anymore uh, through the internet and Holland was of course an early adopter of the internet uh, penetration was already quite high they saw signs uh, from the other uh, side of the Atlantic where many new agencies were just selling only online solutions no offline anymore uh, so after three years, I literally saw the difference between 97 and 2000. In 97, they still thought we need uh, feet on the ground in Belgium for us to be able to provide um, uh, work for Belgian clients. And literally within two or three years' time, they, they centralized everything back to uh, Holland again. They closed their offices in Belgium, which was our office, in Singapore, and they had one in Heidelberg, Germany too. Uh, so everything is uh, uh, still run from Amersfoort as we speak. They still exist. They have an international uh, footprint, but not from local offices anymore. So that was, I guess, the first wake-up call that the company I used to work for had. Um, and it was all indirectly and directly linked to the internet rising as a methodology. Hakim's experience at Market Response was similar to that of research agencies the world over. They realized the internet was going to change how research was done. This was just before the the famous internet bubble burst. Uh, so all companies was, were heavily investing in internet as a solution, as an e-commerce platform, as a place where in the near future they would um, um, earn huge amounts of money. And so many, many made big investments and for those investments to be as risk-free as possible, they would brief agencies that would be much more informed about the internet space than others. Um, so they would, uh, market response at the time, would get a lot of briefings from those spe specific type of um, clients looking for, I would say, expertise in the internet domain. And... Uh, with that, automatically, they had access to all these websites of all these 
heavily investing companies and that's where they where they would collect through pop-ups typically uh, their panel now this is a really important point as research migrated more and more to the internet companies started building these research panels the panels were really just databases with emails and demographic data on potential respondents initially the internet was used only for recruiting while the actual survey or focus group would be done offline that is, in person or over the telephone. But it became clear that even this wasn't going to last. Phones died out, and the research itself moved to the internet. Calling people on their fixed lines is something of the past, and people will not respond to it anymore, are not open to stay 20 minutes on the line and, uh, and actually reply to very boring questionnaires. And it makes sense, then, that research would move the way so much activity would move, online. So why, then, the dying horse metaphor? Uh, we've seen the steep decline in response rates throughout the years and literally throughout the days. At a certain point, you could see there's a tipping point, which I still feel um, comes along with the rise of social media, where just before the rise of social media, there was this new web 2.0 user-generated type thing, but it was all a bit scattered and th there were not really big um, software companies or social media providers because the, the term nor the idea of social media was not out there anymore uh, yet. But I think that was the breakthrough when people started to realize that internet should, should be a fun space where people are engaging on a very sp in a very spontaneous way and where literally whatever you do you get back in some kind of way and and it really became a peer-to-peer -peer platform the internet only became peer-to-peer -peer when social media got big and together with that i think the 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 classical way of just running uh, huge, uh, long-lasting questionnaires where people would not know uh, what to respond um, just died out, basically. Um, and, and I think it coincides with the rise of social media. We had the drop in, in response. I think up until 2007, 2008, just before the rise of Facebook, uh, we were still having like 10, 20, 25% of response rate, which is fine, one in four, sometimes one in 10, depending on the complexity of the questions. But then drastically it dropped below the 5%, um, the, the compliance rates and the response rates. Um, but it, it's all, and I'm not saying that it's the fault of uh, social media, but I think it coincides together and it's not a, not a coincidence. Now this, I think, is worth digging into a bit. With the growth of internet research, a handful of massive panel brokers emerged. These were companies who had millions of email addresses and associated profiles for people. And remember, this was before anything like social listening or public profiles with all of your personal data. So this was a goldmine. So let's say you have a new product and you want to research how to make your new product appeal to young, trendy city dwellers in the coastal US. You go to a research agency and commission a piece of research to look into this specific group of people. That agency goes to one of these panel brokers who digs into their giant database, 
to find people who fit that profile. The broker connects the participants with the agency, the agency pays the broker for using their panel, and the client pays the agency for the full research package. But most companies who are paying for the research don't realize that essentially all the research agencies are using the same small number of panel providers. What this means is that whether your research is done by agency A or agency B, literally the same participants will likely be part of the research. And more and more, those participants aren't showing up. From our standpoint, we know we all use the same panel brokers. Sooner or later, it's going to be finished. We know there's no more natural inflow for the panel brokers anymore. Uh, we know that email is dead. These are all observations that we as consumers, not even at age, as agencies, we can realize. We all use uh, WhatsApp much more than we use SMS services. We all use much more Messenger than we use email. Uh, we all take much more pictures than we talk to each other. So these are all new things, again, coinciding with the rise of social media, um, which the today the agency world is not prepared for yet and where also many clients are not aware of yet or don't um, they still think we have a lean and mean horse whereas i think we all the agencies all know it's a dying horse and then the question becomes what should this dying horse be doing you have these um, agencies that just give them steroids um, in order for them to keep on walking and keep on working um, because they have actually the volume and the size and the scale to give them st steroids and to pretend that it's not a dying horse. Uh, but I don't think we as a site consulting can afford to do anything like that and we should probably change horses. And that brings us to today. Market research has come a long way from its humble origins of pestering people on the sidewalk about magazine ads. We're still pushing ahead, learning new things every day from people all over the world, but the current routine is just unlikely to last. And that may seem scary, but what it really means is that there's a chance for something new, for something innovative. And that's something we'll explore in future episodes. Here at Insights, we're working on one approach to address this issue. It's known internally as the square. Here's a sneak peek. The square is really, um, for me, a um, mind shifter in two important ways. First of all, it's about a different relation uh, with customers. It's really giving people a good experience by allowing them to help you. So it's making research relevant again. And to be honest, at this moment, it's not. The second element is that it allows people working for a certain brand to um, collaborate with consumers in different ways, in very natural, uh, very agile, very strategic, very vivid ways. Intriguing, right? We'll hear more about that and other endeavors shaping market research in upcoming episodes. So check back in. We have a lot planned and a lot already recorded. We'll talk to people here at Insights, but also to clients, to partners, to academics, actually anyone with an interesting story to tell about market research. This show was produced and mixed by me, Farrell Styers. It was edited by Katja Pellini. Production help came from Anke Mordijk. Special thanks to Kat Van Dam, Felix Rumpf, and Hannes Willert for help launching the show. 
For more on Ernest Dichter or other topics on this show, check out our website at insights-consulting.com. That's I-N-S-I-T-E-S-Consulting. And click on the podcast page. Also, check out Adam Curtis's documentary, The Century of the Self, for a critical look into the emergence of market research as a science, including some great footage of Dichter himself. If you're new to podcasting, the best way to listen to this show is with a podcasting app on your phone or tablet. New episodes will show up automatically, and old ones will be deleted, allowing you to listen on the go without burning through your data. Check out our website for more info on how. And finally, please rate our show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, because not only does the feedback help us, but it really helps other people find the show. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Thank you.